My name is Phil Lightstone. I'm a general aviation pilot with over 2,100 hours in my logbook, flying almost every week with over 30 years experience in the technology and aviation industries. We're here at Sun and Fun 2023 in the author's corner at the Florida Air Museum to listen to Kevin Lacey, author of Fly It Like You Stole It, talking to us about his life and career in the aviation industry. Kevin started out in high school chasing his dream to be an airline pilot. While he didn't make it to American Airlines, his career landed him fixing and flying small GA aircraft and super cool corporate jets. As a cast member on Airplane Repo, Kevin's unique down-to-earth style attracted a lot of fans, both aviators and aviation enthusiasts alike. Kevin is a well-rounded, accomplished aviator with nearly five decades of aviation experience. He holds an airline transport pilot certificate with multiple jet type ratings, a seaplane rating, and a flight instructor certificate. In addition, he is a certified aircraft mechanic with inspection authorization. In a subsequent episode, Kevin will introduce members of the Tango 31 Aero Club, a nonprofit organization created to help teenage people in aviation. You can get Kevin's book on Amazon. My fourth grade English teacher right now is rolling over in her grave that I wrote a book, I can promise you that. And the funny thing about this book, mistakes and all, you know, I mean, I, how this all started was I was in Brazil. And I think it was 2005 or 2000 somewhere. And I was down there to capture a bunch of 737s from a, from a legacy airline down there called Vaspi. And each week I would send back a report on what's going on. I was there for almost three years. So I would send a report back each week on to my friends, actually, of what was going on down there, what kind of fiasco I was engaged in at the time. And when you got three 737s scattered about a country, it's uh, kind of a fiasco. They got, you know, I told folks over there one point in time that this place better than a South Dallas chop shop, you know, because they're stealing parts off the damn 737 and selling them to this other airline over here and putting them on those. Here in the U.S., you wouldn't do that stuff. I mean, that would be illegal as can be. But I come home for Christmas vacation, and we have a gathering, and all my friends get together. We have a little beer drinking contest. And everybody's wondering, you know, everybody's laughing about the little stories that I was sending back because they were kind of funny. Maybe I have a particular way of articulating what had happened that made it entertaining. And in the meantime, People were getting, how come I'm not on that email list? How come I'm not getting those stories? What's going on? So after three years of sending these email lists, these emails in once a week for three years to about 250 of my closest friends, they started saying, if I didn't take those emails and turn them into a book, then they were going to do it for me. <laughs> so because there was some entertaining uh, issues that had gone on. And so I thought, well, you know, okay, Lynn, she, my insurance agent was pretty articulate and she's pretty smart. And uh, she was about ready to start formatting it into a book. And I said, you know, I think I can do that myself to put this book together here and tell you how I'm down there in Brazil. I was going to call it Kevin's Brazilian Adventure, right? In order to explain how I got there, I had to go back to the early days to sort of explain what gave me the skills, the talents, and the aptitude to do what it is I do. When I was a kid, 
I was living in a really not so nice part of town. School was pretty much a, we had cops on every floor of the school. We had cops on the perimeter of the school. We had a helicopter, a Bell 47 police helicopter hovering over the school about four to eight hours of the day. And that's no kidding. Welcome to Oak Cliff, baby doll. Anybody ever see that movie, Friday Night Lights? That football movie where David W. Carter High School goes out and beats the crap out of Midland, Odessa? Well, that's the school I went to. And that's how it was in the hallways. <laughs> It was, uh, it was pretty much a you know, fist fight every day going to school, especially for a fair-haired little white boy, you know what I mean? It was uh, quite an interesting deal, but the third floor study hall over there in Charm School went, looked right over there across about 1.5 miles as the crow flies to Dead Bird Airport. And all I'd do is sit there and toss paper airplanes out into the courtyard and wonder where those people are going. What I did know about them was they were getting out of town. <laughs> That's what it looked like to me. And I wanted to be a part of that party. I wanted out of here quick. So I started riding my bicycle over there to the airport. And next thing I knew, I was wiping bellies and cleaning airplanes and doing whatever it was I could for a little airplane ride. I went to the Dallas Morning Newspaper, the Dallas Times Herald, the morning paper and the afternoon paper. The busting tables at the Wishbone restaurants where I got my first money to pay for my first flying lesson. I got to where I was soloing, pretty entertaining because there was an awful lot of concrete out there just north of the little airport I soloed at. And I thought I'm out there buzzing around, having a good time. So I start using that concrete as my place to go shoot touch and goes. I'm 17 years old. I have no idea what's going on. I mean, I'm just dumb as a box of rocks like every other kid, just like you, you know? <laughs> I mean, nobody told me anything about that slab of concrete over there. I was shooting touch and goes out there. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was going to be like another yellow belly drag strip that they had over down the way there, you know, a couple of miles away. Or down in Ennis, they had a pretty good long drag strip down there too. And that's what I thought it was. But there was never anybody around, so I figured, well, I'll just use this to shoot touch and goes on. Long about September of 1973, I'm hearing on the radio where we're going to have the, we're going to welcome the jet age into North Texas. And I think, well, this ought to be entertaining. You know, I'm a 17-year-old kid. I'll jump in the car and I'll drive all the way out there to West Texas to see what's going on out there. What that there was so much land, uh, landmarks around the neighborhood, but it was just that eerie feeling that I, I had been here before. Come to find out, that was a dedication ceremony for the, what was called then Dallas-Fort Worth uh, International Airport, or Dallas-Fort Worth Regional Airport. So I'd been using DFW Airport as my practice field for takeoffs and landings when I was a kid and I had no idea where I was <laughs> I mean they, yeah there's barricades out there on the runway and then you know some places but you know you got a 10,000 foot runway and I got a little Cessna 150 I can shoot touch and goes three or four times on one one approach and have a good time with it I realized I shouldn't be doing that anymore and I was probably going to be having some conflicts with the Concord because the Concord was there that day there was a bright shiny 707 sitting out there on the ramp that belonged to American Airlines and I walked up the stairway to that 707 there was nobody on it now Braniff had their fat Albert their big 747 sitting over there and they had the open bar on the upper deck you know people were calling in and out of there the Concorde was sitting over there and they were all the executives and these uh, important people doing whatever important people do were wandering around and milling around but this poor lowly old 707 sitting over here with all the powered up, nothing going on over there. So I charge right up in there and there's nobody in there. 
It's powered up, the cockpit's all lit up. Look back here, it looks like stadium seats in the back. And I thought, well, hmm, I'd never been on an airliner before. So I crawled up there in the cockpit and I looked, and there's nobody around. All these damn flight, uh, flight engineer panels all lit up, all these switches, whistles, and bells, and knobs, and dials. And, and I just sat there in total amazement. I go, holy cow, I'm a Cessna 150 pilot. <laughs> and I'm looking at all these dials and switches and things. And, so I crawled in after I sat in the flight engineer desk for a little while. I climbed in the cockpit in the captain's chair and I sat there and I identified most of the instruments there, but I had no idea what all this stuff was. There all the switches up here, flight engineer panel, I had no idea, but they had all these flip charts and all this important looking paperwork around there. I go, oh God, I'm just a dumb high school kid going to Carter High School. You know, there's no way I can ever figure out what, what it's gonna take to do this. Maybe I can, I don't know. I don't think they're any smarter than I am. I'm, I just may have to start studying at school, you know, do some, do some good there. So, anyway, as the uh, as the story goes, I went back to school and I started getting my grades up a little bit. My high school counselor, Mr. Spruill over there, took note that Kev's out there flying. Well, he happened to be a partner in a Mooney over at Dead Bird Airport, and he started taking interest in my efforts. He said, "I tell you what, you get your grades up, I'll start hustling you to the military out there." Really? Okay, cool. Oh yeah, I can see myself flying an F-4 Phantom or something like that. Yeah, don't know if I'd know how to do it, but I'll give it a shot. So he starts parading me all over. He takes me to the Air Force. You got a congressional letter, a letter of recommendation from a congressman or anything? No, I'm just a dumb kid from Oak Cliff, what do I know? They take me to the Navy, we go over there, no, nah, we're not interested in anybody. Okay, well shoot, we go to the Marine Corps. Nah, we don't need any help over here. We get down to the Army and they go, where all have y'all been? Well, we've been to the Air Force, the Navy, the Marines. Did anybody bother telling you that we're closing down that party in Southeast Asia and for about two years we're not going to need any, any new recruit pilots or anything? We got combat-hardened vets out there right now that we're bringing back. We don't know what to do with them. Until we process them out the door, we don't need any new people because we've got all the slots filled. Oh, good grief. Well, best bet, young man, go strike out into the civilian world. So, you know, my hat's off to all the vets. Appreciate the work that they all did, you know, and uh, uh, I salute them every chance I get. But they've been a thorn in my side my entire career. Because you understand the airline industry now. Go back to that day in seven, uh, September 1973 when I'm sitting in the cockpit of that 707. I'm going to be a pilot for American Airlines, by golly. That is my life's goal. I will be a pilot for American. I know I got a lot of work to do to get there, but in case y'all don't know, most of the airline pilots of, in that era were all World War II guys. They all squadron patches, you know, that good stuff. So I'm a civilian guy and I'm gonna to try to charge into the uh, airline world. I start climbing the ladder trying to get my advanced ratings. I sign up to go to Spartan School of Aeronautics because they said, yeah, your best bet's to go over to a school and do this in the civilian world. I get myself all situated, get a job up there in Tulsa, go to Spartan. I wander into the flight school and they look at me and they go, oh yeah, Mr. Lacey, hang on a second. There's all this chaos going on back there behind and I don't know what the hell's going on. So what the heck? Finally, they go, Mr. Lacey, you're at the wrong campus. You need to be over on Pine Street. You need to saddle up and haul ass because they're going to close it just a little bit. Now, I'd loaded up my car, packed everything up there, driven all the way to Tulsa that morning, 
And now they're telling me I'm on the wrong campus. I got to go somewhere else. I'm like, okay. So I drive over there. They get me all hooked up. Yeah, this is your class schedule. You'll be in that classroom over there for the next month or so. I'm like, okay. So after a couple of weeks, this is really intense math. This is more math than I'd ever done in high school. But, you know, so finally after a couple of weeks, I sit there and raise my hand. Hey, look, what can I do for you? Well, this is all fine and dandy, and I understand this is pretty important stuff we're doing here, but when do we get to start flying? He turns around and looks around the classroom. Anybody else? Now, keep in mind, this is Spartan School Aeronautics, Part 141 and a part whatever maintenance, 147 maintenance school. They're doing all this GI Bill stuff. So there's about three of four kids raised their hand. They thought they were here for flight training. We'll talk to you guys at lunch. Okay. So we go out there to lunch break. Okay, what the hell's going on here? In case you guys didn't know, you guys are enrolled in A&P school. A&P school? I didn't drive 300 miles to get here to go to A&P school. I came here to go to flight training. Here's the problem, folks. Our resources in, our, in flight instructors, airplanes, and what have you, are best allocated to the guaranteed money. You're up here on your nickel. Guaranteed out of, out of you four guys, only one of you is going to get through the program. So now we've allocated resources for other three guys, and we're not using them. And now we have to fill in those slots to get the money for it. But the government's going to pay us, guarantee it, no matter what, whether they drop out or not. So we're rolling the dice on sending you over here. Now, we'll give you your money back. You can go back home if you want to. Oh, shoot, I, ain't, I ain't leaving Tulsa unless I got some credentials in my back pocket, you know. So anyway, I stuck it out with the A&P uh, training program and was really lucky in to get to go to work for a guy named Robert Latero, Lot Aero Flying Service up there in uh, Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And just a dumb kid, wet behind the ears, he turned me loose, let me build engines, let me help build engines, taught me how to build wings. We went out and pulled wrecked airplanes out of the field, pulled them back in. I mean, I, I was eat up with it. I'm going to night school till midnight. I'm up at six o'clock in the morning at the airport at 6.30 and we're tearing airplanes apart, putting them back together again. The youngest kid in the crew is the only one certified or qualified enough to actually perform a test flight on the airplanes. <laughs> and that was me. So I got to do all the test flying of these little wrecked airplanes that we had rebuilt and learn how to rig them, tweak them. This engine don't run right. Something's out of balance here. I, oh, that prop blade's not quite straight. You know, something's wrong. So I kind of learned at an early age how to identify an airplane that is safe to fly and one that ain't safe to fly. Now, make that distinction, safe to fly, as opposed to airworthy. There's two different terms right there, in case y'all don't know. Now, airworthy means it's qualified with all the regulations, type certificate data sheet, and all the other stuff to verify that that thing does meet its type certificate. Safe to fly means, well, yeah, that motor may hang together until you get to your destination, and, you know, but it may not, so you're, you're on your own there. But I did learn quite a bit while I was up there. So I come home with my private pilot certificate and I come and my A&P back to Texas. I went to work at a maintenance shop and they stuck me in the back corner, drilling rivets out of the bellies of Beechcraft bearings and Bonanzas and 310s when they'd been geared up and rebuilding wrecked airplanes. And I, hey boss, can I move to the front shop where we, you know, we do oil changes and things like that, you know, do routine maintenance on these airplanes? No, you're stuck back here. See ya. Wound up getting a job at Love Field at a little place called Boardman Aviation. I was the youngest director of maintenance ever. I had to get a waiver out of the Southwest 
uh, SW05, which is the uh, DF, which was the Dallas FISDO office up there. They gave me a waiver to be director of maintenance. I hadn't had my A&P certificate long enough, minimum three years. And shoot, I only had it for about six or eight months. So they gave me a waiver and I wound up taking care of this fleet of airplanes. I made a deal with the old owner of the flight school. I need some, I need some advanced flight training. And in return, I got an A&P certificate and I can take care of those 16 airplanes out there. Of course, <clears throat> him being a big old airline pilot, you know, he looks down, he looks down his beak at me through his glasses, you know, and he's all big, important looking, you know, and, well, you can't take care of these airplanes. We've had a bunch of people out here take care of these airplanes. They can't, we can't fix a shimmy on this little airplane over here. We put 10 shimmy dampeners on there. Oh, okay. He talked to me in such a condescending fashion. I decided I really probably didn't want to work for him anyway. I said, screw it. But while I was there, he toured me through his little maintenance shop. Spare parts is what it was, you know, on a workbench in there. And I wandered through there. And while he was giving me this dissertation about how I'm too young and dumb to go to work for him, I spotted that he's got a brand new pair of torque links and shims and all the good stuff. Yeah, Echo Hotel's been really bad for us for a long time, you know. I mean, that thing's just, you got a shimmy under your Cessna 150? Yeah, well, I can fix that for you. <laughs> I know I know how to fix that. So anyway, I told him, well, thank you for your condescension, you know, and I'll see you later. And I walked out the door, and he sat back there behind his desk and looked all important, and I wandered right around the corner. Went back in that shop, grabbed me a pair of dykes, a couple of cotter pins, torque links, went back out there, Changed out those torque links. Oh shit, I forgot the damn grease gun. So run back in there, grab a grease gun, grease up the thing, push it down the tail, you know, double check everything. Okay, it's working. So I went back inside, put all the tools and stuff back. Now, by the way, I don't think you're gonna have any more problems with Echo Hotel over there, okay? And I walked away and didn't say another way. But, 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 nah, I gotta go, I'll see you. We didn't have cell phones back then, right? Time I get home, there's six messages on my answer machine. Well, maybe I underestimated. You think you can come back and visit? Maybe we ought to talk, you know? So we did talk and we made an arrangement that uh, the entire flight school is swamped with GI Bill guys. But his dedication to me is that I keep that fleet flying and keep that money rolling in for him. They would get me through my commercial multi-engine instrument ratings. Now it was tough. I was doing, I was flying at midnight and all kinds of hours of the night because that was the only time the airplanes weren't being flown, and so I earned my ratings and got my advanced certificates there. Finally, one day, this guy wanders in the door. He does drive-bys now. He lives, he lives 200 miles away down in Conroe, Texas. He comes by, he does a monthly drive-by, and he walks around the office, and he browbeats everybody in the office, you know, tells us what a crappy job we're doing, and then he goes away. But he leaves everybody in a bad mood. Well, he caught me on a bad day. I'd been over to the cylinder shop, Picked up a cylinder that needed to put on this little airplane over here. Went by Van Dusen over there to pick up some more brake linings and O-rings for the uh, brakes that I needed to put on that airplane over there. And uh, there was something else I picked up that day, and I don't remember what it was. But anyway, I show back up there probably 8.20 or 8.30 or so. And he starts chasing me around the building and just yelling at me and cussing at me. What nerve do I have to show up late when there's two airplanes sitting on the ramp? So, you know, I've got a cylinder under my arm, you know, well, you know, gee whiz, dude, I just went and picked this up. Why are you, why are you chasing, picking up parts? Because I got nobody else to do it. That's why. You know, I'm, doing, I'm doing everything. I'm the parts department. I'm the chief mechanic. I do all the paperwork. I do all the logbook entries. I do everything. And so he finally just addressed me down enough, and I said, fine. 
The only damn thing around here dude you own is the name above the door. I will see you later. And I packed up my play toys, got, got in the truck and left. My phone didn't stop ringing for about two weeks. I mean, maybe I was just a little harsh on you. Maybe you need to come back. No, by then I'd already gotten another job. This job was kind of cool because it was a little, you call it fly-by-night cargo operator. It's exactly what it was. Running around there in Beechcraft Barrens, Bonanzas, and uh, uh, Twin Comanches, Aztecs. And they were out there hauling canceled bank checks. I don't know if they do that anymore. I think everything's all gone digital, but hauling canceled bank checks and biomedical exams. And if <laughs> you wouldn't remember this young man, but we used to actually send our film, a roll of film into the, into the store and then they would fly that stuff down to Austin, Texas for the Fox photo and then they would develop it and then we'd carry the, we'd carry the little canisters down one day and we'd carry the developed film back the next. I had to maintain the fleet of airplanes. They put me on as a reserve pilot to fly when I needed to, but in the meantime, now I've got all these fancy high performance airplanes. I'm hauling the mail out there some nights, working on the airplanes all day, getting loaded these things up with ice, you know what I mean? You want to learn about icing conditions? Let me tell you something. When it starts ticking on the side of the airplane and things starting to get boom, boom, gets a little louder. Yeah, you got a problem going on there. I had a lot of experiences flying those little old freighters, ferrying them home when they weren't exactly airworthy, but safe enough that I could get them home. I had an engine failure coming home on one of them. And if you ever tried to fly a twin Comanche on one engine, it's not bad flying it, but get it on the ground, you can't turn that sucker. The only way you can turn it is the, is the, the you know, with the good engine, you know, and it's like right engine's running, you can turn right. Left engine's running, you can turn left. One of them, you can't turn into the dead engine. You can't turn away from the dead engine there, I guess I should say. So that was a pretty good entertaining experience. And I'm still trying to get my ratings, my hours, and, you know, levitate myself so that I can qualify for an airline job, American Airlines. I mean, I've already got applications. I drove out there to Irving, Texas, picked up the applications. They didn't do this stuff on the internet. <laughs> internet didn't exist either back then. Al Gore hadn't come along and invented the internet. <laughs> you know, so, but it was a lot of hard work climbing the ladder and earning the, earning the ratings that I did. I'd had enough of that operation over there. Why did I have enough of it? Well, I come back from a, a mission one day only to find these guys with the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency slapping labels on half the dang airplanes over there. When I say slapping labels on them, they're sealing the doors, DEA label, you know, it was against the law to come bust this thing open. I go, whoa, oh, <laughs> what in the heck's going on? Previously, I had identified in the logbooks, I just did a 50-hour inspection on this airplane on, on Thursday. It's not even scheduled to fly this weekend. It's now Wednesday the next week and it's doing another 50-hour inspection. Something's going on here. So now I got the airplane in the shop and I'm doing, doing another inspection on the dang thing. And damn, there's a 30-30 rifle in the back here. What's that doing back here? What are these jerry cans? You know what a jerry can is? You know those big steel fuel cans? Well, shit, there's seven of those in here. What's this about? Oh my God, here's a whack chart. Anybody know what a whack chart is? World Aeronautical chart? Pull this whack chart out and I start studying this thing. Somebody had hand-drawn NDB approaches into the middle of nowhere down in Mexico. And I'm going, oh my gosh. Well, this day when I wander back over to the shop, the DEA is all over the place. This Aztec is sitting out there on the ramp and I'm looking out there, what the hell? It's got a flat nose tire. Well, okay, that, that kind of thing happens. 
What is that sticking out of the cowling over there? Somebody done took my ass truck and flew that thing through the tops of the trees. And they implanted and buried tree branches in the flaps, into the engine cowling, bent one of the props, wound up with a flat nose tire, and went, ooh. So I get interrogated by the DEA. We've been watching you boys for a while. Yeah, okay. I didn't have nothing to do with nothing to do with anything except keeping these airplanes. Yeah, we know that. We know. But if you got anything you can tell us, we'll be sure happy to listen. Sir, I don't know. I don't know anything about anything. All I can tell you right now is that I'm getting upset because I'm going over here and doing maintenance that I don't shouldn't have to do because the airplane is only scheduled to fly this much, and I'm having to do this maintenance on a regular, on a more recurring basis than what I should have. But I got all these other airplanes that I still got to do too. So. Uh, this one or two 30-hour flights a week is starting to get get to me, you know, making me mad. Anyway, I walked out the door, <laughs> packed up my toy box, and flee the scene. But I did bank a lot of good flight hours, and I did uh, learn a lot of things. So I went wandering around looking with my resume, as good as, uh, as I could type up on a Smith Corona typewriter, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have word for windows. <laughs> You know, we didn't have the Google Cloud or whatever the hell y'all want to call it now, you know, but uh, so I typed up the best resume I could put together. My, my shop had been next to this other shop and I had always visioned working for those guys because they had old DC-3s, they had Converse, you know. I mean, I really couldn't stand the sight of every time I saw one of their pilots, you know, they were covered in engine oil, you know, and they were all kind of greasy and grubby. But I thought that would be really cool to go fly those old airplanes. They looked at me when I wandered in that door. What are you doing, kid? You know, get the hell out of here. You ain't got enough salt and vinegar in you to take on a job like this. Oh, well, I thought I might be the kind of guy that you guys would want, you know? I am full of piss and vinegar. I will get out here and roll up my shirt sleeves. I'll be up to my armpits and engine oil and engine grease, you know, before you know it. Well, they weren't having any of it, so I wandered up to Addison Airport to Falcon Airways. Now, those boys had the Carvairs and grease E3s. And the Carver, in case you don't know, is an old DC-4 that they took and they made it to cart airplanes across the English Channel. That's all it was supposed to do, fly Mercedes-Benz from, from uh, Germany to London or wherever the heck it was. And it was kind of like a 747. It's got a big old bulb on the, on the nose of it and it opens up like this and they just drive the cars in it and then they close the thing. Made a pretty cool freighter, but you know, Falcon Airways up there had, a couple, had three of them, I think. And then they had some DC-3s and a couple old Convers. And I used to think, man, those guys got brass balls of steel up there, you know I mean? I see this greasy three coming in, one prop feathered and the other engine's on fire, you know, and those guys just lollygagging in, you know, they pull up to the ramp and shut it down. <laughs> Airplane's about to burn to the ground and you know, they just get out and <laughs> I want to fly for those guys. Well, they wouldn't hire me neither, so. I thought, well, you know, the, one of the places over here at Love Field got a lot of cool airplanes running in and out. Learjets and Falcons and man, that's some sexy looking stuff over there. I want to go play with that stuff. I go in there with all my pilot resume stuff all gussied up, coat and tie, you know, and I wander into the shop and all the maintenance shop is going on over there. Can I help you? Yeah, I'm kind of looking for a job. Oh, well, through those brown doors, all the way down the hall, up the stairs, there's a nice little lady up there. She'll take your resume and your application. And, okay. So I fill out a pilot application, give them all my times and what have you, copies of my certificates. I thought they were pretty happy with that, but she goes, sorry, we're not looking for any pilots. Okay. So I wander out the door, 
back into the maintenance shop. And I'm standing there watching these guys do a gear retraction test on a Falcon 20. And if y'all don't know anything about a Falcon 20, and that's a badass airplane. FedEx got started using those things. And uh, they proved to be 99.9% .9 dispatchable with those airplanes right there, hauling the mail. So <clears throat> anyway, I wandered through the shop, watching those guys do that gear retraction test. This guy from behind me, he's a, uh, hey, what are you doing here? Said, well, I was looking for a job. What kind of job? Well, I was looking for a flying job. Oh, you doing any maintenance work? Yeah. You got an AMP? Yeah. He wanders over to his toolbox, comes out. What's that? I said, well, that's an AM426 number four rivet. What do you, why? He goes, what size drill? Said, Takes number 30 drill, why? What do you want? He said, can you bang rivets? I said, yeah. When can you start? I'll be here tomorrow, I guess. I'll be right back. So he runs up the hall, comes back, get here at eight o'clock in the morning, you're in the shop. Bring your tools. <sighs> Damn it. <laughs> I'm trying to get in the cockpit, guys, you know? <laughs> and this just is not, you know, helping my career much any. But I advanced real quick over there at that shop. They, they pigeonholed me in the sheet metal shop because I was pretty good at it. I'd done a lot of rebuilding wrecked airplanes. I could bang some rivets. I could make some pretty shop tails on those rivets. I could do some pretty good work. But I wanted to get over here and I wanted to do that gear retraction test on that Falcon, pull the gear down three different ways. I wanted to tear that engine apart and do a hot section inspection on a CF-700. I wanted to crawl in that citation and figure out that pressurization system. I mean, I'd spend my lunch break sitting there going through the maintenance manuals. And that was kind of cool because I learned a truckload of stuff about those airplanes. So we get to start talking about flying jet airplanes. I learned every single airplane that I ever flew in the jet category with my toolbox first. I would have conversations in the training class for the Citation, the Learjet, the Falcon, or any of those airplanes that had everybody else's eyes in the room glazing over because we were talking so many levels above their head about the airplane and the maintenance and how you can do different things with the airplane that they didn't know you could do sitting in the cockpit. Well, that's a maintenance event. Well, really? You're going to take off with your number two hydraulic quantity at, you know, at a quarter full? Number one side is, yeah, we can transfer that hydraulic fluid. No, you can't. It says you can't in the book here. Well, yeah, you can. <laughs> so it was kind of fun that we, you know, some, for some of that stuff. But, you know, the organization was really pretty cool. Become part of a, for the first time in my life, I'm now marching to the tune of a time clock. I've never done that before. And I'm not, now I'm not responsible for filling out logbooks. I'm not responsible for researching airworthiness directives. All I can do is go out and learn these damn airplanes that are here in the shop. That's kind of cool. They sent me to Learjet school. They sent me to Falcon school, citations, two or three citation schools. I come part of that crew and I kind of lost my way. I didn't know what I, I'd forgotten that I wanted to be a pilot. Three years later, you know, I'm, I'm laying in a hospital with two broken legs, a shoulder all ripped to pieces, contusions all over my head and concussion, kind of all stretched up in a sling, if you will. They get me one little bitty window over here and I'm doped up on Demerol for probably a month. I was pretty beat up. And all I could see is those airplanes because I was on final approach or departure path for Dallas Love Field. And I see those 737s ripping out of there and coming back in. Okay, guys, I've lost, I've lost my way. I need to get back to the cockpit and I need to start flying again. So somehow or another, I managed to earn the record of getting fired more times than anybody at Jet Fleet. And they fired me three times. But it was kind of cool because they kept calling me to come back. Hey, Kev, 
We got a big inspection coming due on the, uh, some citations. We got three in a row, man. That's your specialty. Uh, you reckon you can uh, reckon you come back to work? Another dollar an hour, I might talk to you about it. Okay, come on. <laughs> but they kept firing me because I was moonlighting. Keep in mind our shop, Learjet's, Falcons, Citations, Bach 111s, and Gulf Streams. They didn't mind if I was out here moonlighting on a Beechcraft Baron or a Cessna 172 or whatever. They didn't care much about that. But when I was moonlighting on a Citation or a Learjet or something that the shop actually worked on, well, they really didn't see too kindly of that. But, you know, I was always getting suckered and baited in because these pilots call, Hey, Kev, yeah, what, what you want? You come down to our hangar and fix up our airplane? Yeah, we're, we're considering hiring a co-pilot mechanic. Shit, I'm on my way, you know? <laughs> I'm gonna get me in the, I'm gonna get myself in the saddle over there. Uh, so I'm all excited about that. Y'all come down here and play, and do whatever it is y'all want me to do. And so I keep getting caught, you know? So once again, they fire me. Last time they fired me uh, was pretty good because one of the, uh, my Moonlight customers, it was a pretty prominent organization. The guy was at one point in time the mayor of Dallas. I thought he was a business leader in the community, you know, he was one of those Boy Scouts. Just donated six million dollars worth of property and construction materials for the children's hospital. Found a way to get through City Hall and managed to build Reunion Arena, which actually was a big boon to the city down there and helping get, you know, basketball teams and hockey teams and things of that nature to the town. Where everybody in town always said he had an ulterior motive trying to uh, benefit personally from these things but no he was actually trying to benefit the city and so he did a good job with that and i was really proud to fly for him when i started realizing that he was one of the guys that was responsible for getting that big old runway out there that i was using with my 150. he was responsible for putting dfw together uh, with the city of fort worth over there and you know i thought yeah damn look who i fly for so now in case I didn't mention it, young man, you, what kind of car you got? What kind of value do you think you got on that? 500 bucks? 10,000? 15? 20? Yeah, see, Junior, you guys, you absolutely have no idea the value of anything, do you? Okay, mama wrote the check. Mama knows exactly what. Okay, young man, let me tell you what you're gonna do next. Because my mom, holy cow, do you have a death wish or what? You're going to go sell that dang car. You're going to go buy you a wrecked airplane. And you're going to get you a motorcycle. And you'll be all hooked up. When I was in A&P school, going back to Tulsa there, I ran across this little tailor craft that was sitting upside down. Bent prop blades, busted up wing, uh, wing struts. Kind of beat all the crap. But it had a rope around the propeller. And it looked like somebody put that rope around the propeller and hooked it to the trailer hitch on the back of the truck and drug it off the runway up by the barn. <laughs> That's where I found my little tailor craft. And I could not figure out how I was going to come up with 1500 bucks to pay for that damn thing. But I had a pretty nice car, so I, I don't need that damn car. I need an airplane. <laughs> so at four, three and a half to four gallons an hour, people, what do you want a tailor craft for? It's so slow. I'm building hours, guys. <laughs> you know what? I don't care how fast it is. You know, if it takes me three hours to get to Oklahoma City, so be it, you know, that's three more hours in my logbook. Keep in mind, back then, it's all about getting the hours, you know, and you gotta get 1,500 hours so you get that ATP. Now, today, 
I don't have any idea what it takes to get an ATP. They've changed these rules up so much. I think they've bastardized the whole industry by giving these peckerheads an ATP at 1,000 hours just because they went to some charm school over here. And I've got news for you. I was getting on my soapbox a little bit here, and I don't want mean to, but, you know, it, it, is, it is absolutely insane because there is no aeronautical decision-making skills to be learned by sitting next to a kid who's got 10 more hours than you do who he's teaching you how to fly the damn airplane. This guy never been in icing conditions. He never had to dodge a line of thunderstorms. Never had to wrangle any of that nonsense out there. Never had to deal with a 30 or 40 knot crosswind, you know, on an icy runway and try to figure out how to keep that sucker sliding down the runway straight and, you know, come away with an airplane that ain't broke yet, you know. And then try to figure out how to take one that's kind of broke and get it home. So, now this restricted ATP, well, they can kiss certain parts of my posterity over here, you know. That is stupid in my opinion. Go out there, earn the time, bank the hours, learn some aeronautical decision-making skills because you're certainly not going to get it from that peckerwood sitting next to you because he ain't got none either. And that's kind of a shame. Back then we had to get 1,500 hours in our logbook. You had to take your logbooks, but then I think I had three. You had to go to the fed shed. In case you don't know what the fed shed is, it's the FAA's office. You go to the fed shed with your logbooks and they take them, keep them for about three days while they evaluate the time that you put in that, in that logbook. And when they finally decide that you've got 1,500 hours, they would then give you a letter. That was your permission slip so you could go to ATP school. This wasn't for anything else other than that you could go qualify to take the ATP written test. And that's what that was about. And that's just the written test. I don't mean the flight training that you gotta go through to get that ATP. But that's, uh, that's another aspect of it. But what that letter was, just saying, okay, you now qualify. Nowadays, if you got a pulse and you can uh, fog a mirror, they're taking you in the airlines, and that's about absolutely ridiculous. And I'll tell you another thing that I think is going to be kind of scary here in the future because it's starting to crop its ugly head up out there. Remember, they had a big fiasco about this scandemic here with this COVID stuff, right? And they're all of a sudden starting to find out that some of these people that took those clot shot jabs or whatever it was, they're starting to fall down and get hurt. And sports stars, airline pilots, they're pulling several of them out of the cockpit, you know, uh, falling over dead with 250 passengers in the back. Now, this is the real deal. It's happening. So the AMEs are up there going, we don't, you know, we give a first class medical. We do EKGs. We do all this other stuff. We don't have any other way to, rather than draw blood maybe, to find out what kind of enzymes they've got in their blood system that may be causing these clots and these strokes and these instant heart attacks. But they're, they're now scratching their head and they're saying, well, we really got to work on this. So I'm afraid there's going to be another shoe drop here in the near future with respect to the quality, qualified airline pilots. Now, I can tell you this, I'm getting on an airplane. I'm like, I don't want anybody to have one of those uh, shots. But fortunately, I don't ride in the airlines too much. I've got my own stuff to fly. I kind of like that. But keep in mind, young man, you're banking out. How many hours you got now? I got 97 hours. I got two kids who added 10% to their total time just flying down here to sunny fun they're going to add another 10 percent going home <laughs> this is a 10-hour flight down here from texas but you know the uh the fun thing is is that i busted my ass worked my ass off my goal from the day i was in high school was to be a pilot for american airlines and because they left me alone in that cockpit they left me sitting in there for about 45 minutes by myself Looking at all those dang flight manuals, the flip charts, 
I mean, every light was on in the cockpit. They had the GPU plugged in, and I was just sitting there in total amazement. Nobody come up and bothered me. It wasn't until I was going out to change a cylinder in Amarillo. Got one cylinder under one arm, toolbox in the other arm. I go carrying on to Southwest Airlines and load up my toolbox here, cylinder down, no, cylinder up here in the overhead and toolbox underneath the seat. Yeah, I had knives. I had all kinds of stuff in there. I could have. <laughs> Today, I can't even get on board with a, uh, with a with a nail clipper. But when we hit V1 rotate going down that runway, Dallas Love Field, first off, everybody there was laughing and carrying on. The people that worked there, the pilots were, the pilots were down there helping load luggage. And then it's V1 rotate, and here comes this babe sliding down the aisle, wearing these little hot pants and these high top leather boots and this fancy little booty britches. And she's, and she's sliding down the aisle on a serving tray. And I thought, man, everybody on this airline is happy. If, if American Airlines doesn't work, I'm going to Southwest. This has just got to be the coolest place to be. Everybody's laughing. Everybody's carrying on. And the world I was living in, I didn't have much opportunity to meet a bunch of airline pilots. Don't ever get discouraged, young man. You've got, uh, got a bright future ahead of you. I was over there at the American Airlines interview. They finally qualified, and I finally got myself in the door for an interview. And I got a funny feeling that they just brought me in there to poke me in the eye with a sharp stick or something because that's about what they did. They had me in there, and the interview is an eight-hour long. No food for 24 hours, no nothing. Interview, dang it, the application has got a medical history form on there. This is no kidding. They want to know all your ancestors all the way back to, and by the way, the chaplain for Stonewall Jackson was my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather or whatever it was. But uh, Jonathan Lacey, I think, was his name. But anyway, so I got some Southern heritage in me there. But uh, they invite me in for this interview, and I follow all the, all the details. I pay attention to what they told me to do. Go in there, sit down, and they give us a big cheerleading session. Oh, yeah, you know, you're, you got invited to interview for the best of the best. Yeah, well, okay, we'll see about that. And they give you about a 30-minute cheerleading session, you know, about that of the greatest airline there ever was. Then they part you up different directions and send you off another way. So I wind up, my first deal was a medical. You guys ever see the right stuff? The poking, the prodding. I mean, people are walking around with, what do you call those bags? I'm not kidding you. That The American Airlines medical portion of the interview, four hours of the day, they're poking you, they're prodding you, they're jabbing things in parts of my, your anatomy I'd rather not disclose. And I mean, they're they putting you in soundproof boxes and asking if you can hear anything. Well, no, it's a soundproof box, dude, <laughs> you know? And you're supposed to be able to hear something. You know, I think I hear something. You know, I hear the wind whistling through here, but they were the most unhappy people I'd ever seen walking around there in lab coats. And I felt like a lab rat being escorted from this section to that section. They're looking in my eyes. They're blowing air in my eyes. They're sticking stuff in my ears and, you know, and they write on their little chart and then they move you off to the next station. They won't talk to you. They you know, wouldn't even smile. Hey, how are you doing today? Well, what are you gonna do to me? <laughs> Come on, bring it on. Keep in mind you hadn't eaten in a long time, so. And they're draining blood, gallons of it, you know. But about noontime, you're just about to faint, you know. You hadn't been fed and watered, no food, no nothing, and they're draining blood out of you as well. So the interview process takes you on through a little more of that. Then you go back, you do some a little aeronautical, uh, an aeronautical test, you know, see if you know anything about an altimeter and things of that nature. Then you come out of that with flying colors. So you go back in there and you get taken to this lady's little cubby hole. And that's where I realized I was, I was doomed again. 
because there was nothing but squadron patches all over this side of her little cubby hole back over there. The interview class had two guys for, they were 141 pilots, two guys that were F-10 pilots, one girl who was a helicopter pilot, and me. And the helicopter pilot, she only had 200 hours in her logbook, what's she doing here? You know, anyway, so this lady starts looking at me and she goes, Mr. Lacey, that's a real noble profession you have flying around these millionaires around the countryside in their little old fancy private jets. But you know what? We'd rather hire a military pilot with 250 hours because we know what we're going to get. And I'm sitting over there, well, you just wasted my whole damn day and your day bringing me over here. And now you're talking all this condescension on me. You know, what is going on here? You know, why, why waste my time if, you're not, if you don't have any intention of weeding me through there and seeing if I've got the mustard what it takes? Yeah. I do, at that time, I did the exact same check ride in my Falcon 20 that their MD-80 drivers were doing, their MD-11, whatever airplane they were flying, we were doing the exact same check ride at the, every six months in my corporate jet as they were doing in their, in their uh, airlines over there. The only difference was the switches are in a little different places and the airplane's a little smaller, but it's no big deal. You know? I mean, I'm doing the same check ride, flying to the exact same standards that their pilots are flying to. So after all this condescension that I go through over here, she pack, gives me this little package. Welcome to the new American. Now, not everybody gets in, so don't be disappointed if we send you a rejection letter. <laughs> but follow the instructions inside this book, and, and we'll see what happens. So I'm driving home, and I'm, I'm, I'm fuming now. I'm going home, and I'm, shit, I'm tired. I'm fuming. I'm pissed off because these people have been, you know, they just really brought me in there and told me I wasn't good enough to fly a damn airplane, and that really wasn't good for me. So I'm driving home, getting madder and madder, and I get home, and I lay sitting on the couch, and I open up this book, and I start looking through there, and I go, huh, what the hell these are? Thanks, Kevin. Check out part two of Kevin's Sun and Fun Author's Corner presentation in an upcoming Plain Talk podcast. Kevin will introduce members of the Tango 31 Aero Club, a nonprofit organization created to help teenage people start their aviation careers. And don't forget, you can get Kevin's book on Amazon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Plain Talk. If you have any ideas for a future Plain Talk episode, please go to the Contact Us page at plaintalk.ca and send in your idea. Don't forget to like us at plaintalk.ca, our Facebook and LinkedIn pages, and this podcast. And never stop living the dream.